0: This is WTMJ Nights, and now here's your host, Dan Schaefer.
1: Welcome to WTMJ Nights. Good evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm going to be your host tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with me and my work, I have hosted uh, WTMJ yet. WTMJ Nights here a number of times. I'm also a weekly guest on uh, Steve Scafidi's show, WTMJ Now. Uh, I'm also the founder of an independent publication and weekly opinion column called The Recombobulation Area. Uh, you can find that work at the Recombobulation Area dot News, Recombobulation Area on Substack. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dan R Schaefer. Uh, yes, the Recombobulation Area, if you were curious, is named after the goofy post security area at the Mitchell Airport. We have a very discombobulating news cycle here in the state of Wisconsin, in the city of Milwaukee. So we like to give you a place to recombobulate, to put your things together, and so you so you can kind of uh uh piece piece. Of Everything together so you can get on uh, to your destination. So, if you're interested in that, uh, cover all, all sorts of different things lots of politics, lots of news, uh, lots of different topics around that. Uh, we have a great show planned for you this evening. Uh, our first guest, who's going to be joining us after our first break, is Claire Koenig from Visit Milwaukee. She's going to be talking with us about Milwaukee Museum Days, which is coming up very soon. Uh, and at 730, we're going to be joined by Charles Franklin, the executive director of the Marquette University Law School poll. Uh, the Iowa caucus was yesterday. Interesting results. Donald Trump way, way ahead of just about everybody else uh, in the Republican field. So we're going to be talking to Charles about those results. And I think, you know, there's always something uh, to be learned from from Iowa about what's happening here in Wisconsin, too, especially you know some of those districts that uh, that border. That border Iowa. So what can those results tell us about what's happening in Wisconsin? We'll talk to Charles uh, about that. Talked about Donald Trump's big victory. uh, Ron DeSantis coming in a very distant second. Nikki Haley coming in right behind him in third. Vivek Ramaswamy dropping out of the race. So lots to discuss uh, with Charles when he joins the show. Uh, That will happen at just about 730 And as anybody who follows me on Twitter knows, I'm a huge Milwaukee Bucks fan. Uh, So while I'm hosting here, I have to have somebody in uh, to talk a little bit of Bucks. So Justin Garcia from the Bucks Radio Network is going to be joining us uh, at 830 we're actually almost at the midway point of the season for the Milwaukee Bucks. Tomorrow will be the 41st game of the season. Feels like the season just started, uh, but we are halfway through the regular season for the Milwaukee Bucks. Trade deadline right right around the corner. All-star break right around the corner. Happens fast, folks, doesn't it? Happens fast. So we're going to be talking to Justin uh, about what's going on uh, with the Milwaukee Bucks. So lots to discuss, and we welcome you to join us. Uh, In our conversation this evening, feel free to give us a call, shoot us a text at the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620. Again, that's 855-616-1620. And I am Dan Schaefer. I am your host for this evening. Uh, And again, we're going to be talking with Claire Koenig coming up after the first break here about Milwaukee Museum Days. Uh, We're going to be talking with Charles Franklin of the Marquette University Law School Poll. And we're going to be talking with Justin Garcia of the Bucks Radio Network. So if you have anything to say, any questions for them, any thoughts about the Iowa caucus, about the Milwaukee Bucks, about Milwaukee Museums, uh, feel free to shoot us a text, give us a call. Again, that is at 855-616-1620. And, and once again, to reintroduce myself here, just in case those of you in our listening audience are not used to uh, perhaps hearing this voice on your airwaves. My name is Dan Schaefer. Uh, I'm the founder of a, on, a weekly opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. Uh, Talk a lot about politics. One of the things that I've been following quite a bit there lately has been the state's redistricting uh, news. As there was the new majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, ruled that uh, we're going to need some new maps for the state legislature seven maps submitted uh last week so i have a if you go over to the recombobulation area right now we've got a great discussion thread going we got some real some some real nerds over at uh, the recombobulation area digging through some of these maps our friend john johnson over at uh, the marquette university at marquette university's uh lubar center has been breaking down some of those and i understand there's been some some news on that front uh on the redistricting front. Uh, not necessarily specific to the state legislature as it has been. There is also, uh, some news this evening. Uh, that a Democratic law firm filed a motion asking the Wisconsin Supreme Court to throw out and replace the state's congressional map as well, aiming to have a new map in place for the 2024 election. That story uh, just broke over the last uh, hour or so over at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, That is going to give us uh, some more to talk about on that front as well. Uh, But for now, we're going to be uh, headed to break here. And when, when we come back, we'll be joined by Claire Koenig of Visit Milwaukee to talk about milwaukee museum days this is wtmj nights stick with us you're listening to wtmj nights Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm the founder of a website and newsletter and a weekly opinion column called The Recombobulation Area. You can check that out at news. And for our next segment here, we are joined in studio uh, by Claire Koenig of Visit Milwaukee. Claire, thank you so much for being here.
2: I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Dan.
1: So it's a big week for visit Milwaukee we have uh, we have an event coming up uh, starting in just a couple days here. What can you tell us about what's happening?
2: Yeah, so we have brought back um, this incredibly popular promotion that we started just before the pandemic called Milwaukee museum days and and actually, we didn't start it by ourselves. There was a bunch of museums actually that got together and said, "We got to do this. This is a slow time for us. It is hard to get people in the doors." What can we do to help? You guys are promoters. How can we work together? So uh, we started it. Now we're back. Launches uh, the 18th, runs through the 28th, and it's just fantastic deals at about 30 area museums. So if you're looking for an excuse to get out of the house or see, go to a museum you haven't been to in a while, or maybe, I mean, I won't tell anyone, but if there's one you've never been to before, um, now is the time in the next 10 days.
1: So this starts uh, just a couple days here. You said uh, Thursday, uh, January 18th.
2: 18th through the 28th, yep. Um, I am on a kick of taking my kids to all sorts of museums around town. And um, to to uh, not pay full price, honestly, is it was, it was pretty good. I mean, we're talking about, like, you can go to the Harley Museum for 10 bucks a ticket. That's a pretty good deal. I think it's normally, like, $22 for a ticket there. Um, and, I mean all the way to smaller museums, the Bucyrus Museum, if you've never been there. I don't know who hasn't gone to the Bobblehead Museum, but if you've never gone to the Bobblehead Museum, again, some great deals. There's even some free museums in there. Um, but just really, there's great programming. A lot of them time some um, special exhibitions or shows for this, um, again, to give people another reason to get in the door. And um, again, now you have no reason not to.
1: It's a a great promotion. I'm a huge fan of so many of Milwaukee's museums. Uh, And like you mentioned, those of us who are parents of young children uh, who may be a little bit cooped up by, oh, I don't know, let's just say... A few snow days to start the month of January. Um, you know, lots of lots of lots of sickness going around. Maybe fighting off a couple of viruses at home with your kids. Uh, you feel a little cooped up. You know, it's hard to get those kids out of the house when it is. What What did they say with the news at the top of the hour? We're at one degree in Milwaukee right now, so it's it's a great time to be uh, exploring Milwaukee's museums and just get those kids out of the house to run around for a while. I love going to the public museum because it gives totally. there's enough. You know, while it's while it's the current. space, that it is uh it's a it's a little bit of a cavernous place you oh, can yeah. let your kids run around a little bit there
2: we're getting exercise there we're learning there we're having a bunch of snacks in that little cafeteria That's right. That's i mean right. betty Brin has raised these children as much as i have <laughs> we are there so often um so and again it also helps. Um, so we promote this campaign outside of our market. We brought in some influencers from different markets, and then all of the advertising is meant to get people who aren't from here to come and like make Museum Days the reason to visit Milwaukee in January. And but locals should take advantage of this too. Um, of course, we want visitors because they spend a bunch of money here, and and that's our whole purpose. But um, again like locals have to jump on this well you can be a not. tourist in
1: your own town a little bit right yes. it's a it's a good yes. thing to and i'm sure you know if you look through the list of museums you know i have of course been to many of these museums and enjoy them regularly but there might be a, one here or there that uh that you might not have been to what do you have totally. a favorite like under the radar milwaukee museum
2: um ew, under the radar a favorite on well I, so as someone who seems to go to museums professionally, cause I do, I, we, I take a lot of people there for sure. tours and, you know, potential meeting planners or media, um, and ones that always like surprise me with, with new things or just some, some story or piece of the story that I've never heard before, um, I mean, are the, the Harley Museum. If you haven't been in there to see the new, there's a few new spaces. There's a whole new shop area, um, I always learn something new there. Pabst Mansion, I always find some other like little detail I've never, um, I've never heard of before. Museum of Wisconsin Art is, and that's out in West Bend. Underrated. It is absolutely, absolute treat. They do some really stellar programming. Um, and and honestly, the bobblehead museum, I find a bobblehead from some like little subsection of culture that I've never seen before. And it's a delight. We, we <laughs> in our office, we found the um we we have a lot of bobbleheads in our office. They're great decor. And um, we found an old one from like 2015. And it was the the Teddy Roosevelt assassination attempt that happened in Milwaukee crossover with the Milwaukee Admirals Bobblehead
1: <laughs> I lo- you know I love a good sports and politics <laughs> yes. crossover that's right out my alley so I gotta go track that one down yes. uh, at the Bobblehead Museum yeah uh, we are coming up to a break here we can keep talking with Claire Canning of Visit Milwaukee about Milwaukee Museum Week uh, after the break this is WTMJ night stick with us Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're joined in studio here for this segment with, uh, Claire Koenig of Visit Milwaukee. We have been talking about, uh, Milwaukee Museum Days, which is starting just in a couple days here. January 18th, it gets started, goes for 10 days. Uh, January 18th to the 28th. Uh, lots of great deals happening, uh, as part of this promotion, Claire.
2: Lots of great deals. Um, the Groman Museum, when we were, we were talking about hidden gem museums earlier. If you've never been to the Groman. It's amazing. There's one painting, and every time I hear the story about it, which I've done it a million times now, but I cry every single time. Um, there's there's just some really powerful um, paintings and stories in that museum, so definitely worth checking that out. And it's five bucks. And then like America's Black Holocaust Museum, also five bucks. If you have not been there, you need to go. Um, we w- Milwaukee is so. Um, we are so lucky and there are so many amazing people who have brought so many of these um, museums to life and you learn so much about our community. I mean, I learn 20 new things every time I go to the um, Wisconsin's black historical society and, and, people dedicate their lives to keeping these, especially these smaller museums, their doors open. Um, and I, I just think that is really incredible. And, um, and I love these people because they also bring in um, tourism and visitors. I mean, people come from all over the world and end up at our museums and um, they bring some of their own really interesting stories with them too in doing so. Um, and especially for locals, sometimes we can forget how, how many amazing cultural institutions like that we have. Um, you know, if you're not a, a parent with young kids, like you're not thinking about Betty Brinn every day, maybe. Right. right. Um, Cause it just kind of comes in different like phases of life. But um, w- we are so lucky and, and to have so many within a super easy drive or even walking distance from one another. Um, we, it's, it's a good thing to celebrate that.
1: Absolutely. M- Milwaukee museum, uh, Milwaukee Museum Day is coming up, uh, just, uh, just two, starts two days from now. So a great time to, to make some plans. Like, yeah, like you said, there are a number of places that have, uh, five dollar admission. A mm-hmm. uh, number of places with ten dollar admission, fifteen dollars. Uh, for places like Discovery World and the Art Museum. Um, but you know, I think it is. I think like 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 you mentioned, it's a great time to you know be a tourist in your own town, discover some of these places that you might not have been, or maybe you know, uh, maybe there were places that you went to regularly before the pandemic or something like that, mm-hmm. and maybe haven't revisited them in a while. And now's a now's a great time to do that.
2: Right. Yeah. It there's. There there's no reason you shouldn't go and uh, try to check out as many of them as you can, but at least one in the next 10 days. It is we we can't make it easier.
1: One one place I always like to go to this time of year Mm -hmm. is the Milwaukee, the the Milwaukee domes the Mitchell Park domes. Partially because, again, like I mentioned, I have I've young kids and they love to run around the domes mm-hmm. and, and uh, say hi to the lizard in the, uh, in the desert dome and whatever, throw, a, uh, throw something at the fish in the jungle <laughs> dome and whatever it is. It's also the warmest place in Milwaukee at this time of year. And sometimes just going into the jungle dome and feeling warm air around you is just such a such a relief. Such a great feeling, uh, and I feel like now is, you know, with $5 admission coming up, now is a perfect time to go.
2: Perfect time to go, and, like, the weather is giving you the only sign you need to go to the domes, right? Like, it is the best escape. It'll pull you out of that seasonal depression, and it just, you can get in a whole new mind space when you're looking at these beautiful plants and flowers and, you know, all the little interesting quirky bits, and... um and escape escape a one degree day
1: absolutely mm-hmm. uh claire koenig from visit milwaukee joining us to talk uh about museum days coming up here just starting in a couple days anything else uh that that you think people should know uh about this uh about this promotion about the the work that you folks are doing over at visit milwaukee on this
2: i think just go to the museums yourselves tell your neighbors in chicago or minneapolis that here's the perfect excuse to get up here um, and. You know, we are excited for a very busy, amazing 2024. So I'm sure there'll be more.
1: Absolutely. There's always more in the city of Milwaukee, always more to do. Claire, thank you so much uh, for joining us in studio today uh, to talk about Milwaukee Museum Days. Uh, We are going over to Wyatt Barmore Pooley with news next. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us. If you want to join the conversation with us here on WTMJ Nights, uh, you can give us a call, shoot us a text at the WTMJ Talk and text line, that's 855-616-1620. And for our next segment here, we are going to to be joined uh, by a guest over the phone. Charles Franklin of the Marquette University Law School poll is going to join us and talk about the results from yesterday's Iowa caucus. Charles, do we have you on the line?
0: I believe so. I'm standing by.
1: (laughs) There you are, Charles. Thank you so much for joining us here on WTMJ Nights.
0: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: So the big Iowa caucus uh, was yesterday. The results, not much of a surprise. Uh, Donald Trump leading the field by a pretty considerable margin. Uh, What were some of your your immediate takeaways uh, from what happened in Iowa last night?
0: I think one thing is just what you said. It wasn't a big surprise. All of the polling had shown Trump with around 50% of the vote. Last night, he got 51%. So almost exactly matching expectations. Nikki Haley had been running at about 20%. She got 19%. So not as much of a surprise there. It was only DeSantis who did better than the polling. He got 50, or 21%. That's still 30 points behind Trump. But for DeSantis, it was important that he finished in second place instead of third place. His campaign has been struggling. He's announced that he's planning to skip New Hampshire next week and go on to South Carolina. Um, he really needed not to finish a bad third last night, and he achieved that. Uh, so I think on balance, the night was best for DeSantis. For Haley, it has to be a bit of a disappointment. Some of the late polling did show her running ahead of DeSantis, and yet she's Fell two points behind him, not a bad loss, but for that second and third place, it means neither of those candidates really got a boost from last night. Only Donald Trump really can claim a substantial victory, not even a moral victory for the second and third place finishers.
1: Yeah, it you know even if you had combined uh, Haley and DeSantis's vote number, they're still not even approaching uh, Trump there. So I think you know it just goes to show how far ahead of the field that Donald Trump uh, is right now, and and was in Iowa. And I think you know I I think we saw stories uh, over the last couple months in the lead up to this that Ron DeSantis in particular was placing an emphasis uh, on his performance in Iowa. I remember hearing stories saying that he he was going all in. Uh, on Iowa. Uh, obviously, you know, being 30 points behind the the front runner uh, is not the greatest of results. But like you said, he finished ahead of Nikki Haley. Uh, I think that is somewhat encouraging. But at the same time, you know, you look ahead down the road for Ron DeSantis. He's I, I saw a poll today that showed him in single digits in New Hampshire. You mentioned that he's uh, skipping that primary entirely. What what do you think the road ahead is for uh, for for some of the non Trump candidates? You know, and and to what extent uh, do you know these Iowa and New Hampshire, some of these early states uh, matter the way maybe they once did?
0: Yeah, I think it's a limited road ahead, especially in the long run. When you look ahead to early March with Super Tuesday, where there are a lot of states most of which Trump would be expected to do well in. I I think the scenario for anybody not Trump, but recently Haley and DeSantis, was do well in Iowa, surprise people how well you did, then go on and do even better in New Hampshire and hope that that sets up a showdown in South Carolina, you know, sort of one-on-one with Trump. I think the results last night mean nobody has those, that momentum. Haley has been gaining steadily in New Hampshire, and in a few polls is only a handful of points behind Trump, but Trump still leads in New Hampshire, even though it's not a strong state for him. Um, DeSantis not going there is just facing the reality that he spent all of his money and resources on Iowa. He didn't have anything left for New Hampshire. And the early polling was showing he really wasn't playing as well to New Hampshire voters as Haley was. Um, Haley, on the other hand, didn't face a disaster last night. She didn't finish a distant third, but it's going to be a little hard for her over this final week before New Hampshire next Tuesday to try to rally the uh, support that she's had and especially claim momentum going forward. Um, And Trump is spending time in New Hampshire. He's undoubtedly going to uh, attack her strongly and try to put her out of the race with a poor showing on in New Hampshire. So who knows? We'll see. We've got seven days for it to play out, but I don't think the results in Iowa really boost people in the way that in the past sometimes a win in Iowa or even a good showing in Iowa could really boost a candidacy going into New Hampshire I don't see that coming out of this. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest
1: host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Uh, Joining us for this uh, uh, part of the show is Charles Franklin, the executive director of the Marquette University Law School poll. We have been talking a little bit about the results from yesterday's Iowa caucus. Donald Trump uh, finishing in a distant first place uh, with uh, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, both uh, roughly 20%. One of the interesting things that I saw about this particular uh, project Primary was on turnout. Uh, The turnout in this uh, this year's Iowa caucus uh, was, I think, the the, the, on track for the lowest turnout since the year 2000 in competitive GOP GOP caucuses. Uh, Part of that, I think, uh, as all of us in the Midwest know, has to do a little bit with the the awful freezing temperatures uh, that we've been experiencing here. Uh, But. Charles, do you think there is another level to this, another factor at play uh, for uh, for the turnout that uh, we saw at the Iowa caucus last night?
0: Yeah, it was turnout was way down in 2016, the last competitive caucus there. Uh, it was 187 thousand turned out last night. It's about 110 thousand, so that's a big drop. And yes, the weather. <laughs> it's really bad, and it's even worse in Iowa right now. On the other hand, they are hardy Midwesterners out there, and so I think it is notable that turnout was down. I'd watch it in New Hampshire next week to see if, in a primary, turnout is down or up there, um, especially if that primary looks a little more competitive. I think the, the sort of conclusion by most people People was that Trump was way ahead in Iowa, so it wasn't really a nail biter. Um, that may have also contributed to turnout being down. New Hampshire will give us a better sense of whether GOP enthusiasm is generally down um, better than I think the Iowa results last night do.
1: Another thing I always look at with the Iowa caucus is, i you know, obviously Iowa is a state that borders Wisconsin, uh, and so is there anything to be learned? from the Iowa caucus results about, you know, what might project to happen uh, among the Republican Party in the state of Wisconsin, particularly, you know, in the in, like, the third congressional district, which borders Iowa.
0: Yeah, you know, I would I would be reticent to make big leaps there simply because Iowa is a much redder state, uh, has a more dominant Republican Party. Whereas here in Wisconsin, we're pretty evenly balanced. If you look within the party, um, favorability towards Donald Trump is about the same here and there. In the last Des Moines Register poll just before the election, among Republican caucus goers, Trump had a 69% favorability rating. Here in Wisconsin, it was 68 in our last reading. Um, and so that's a big majority of the party that like Donald Trump. On the other hand in Iowa he only got 50% of the vote. So that means that 19% liked him but didn't vote for him. Um that's sort of an interesting slippage within the party. We think of Donald Trump as so dominant in the party and he certainly is as the election last night shows. Um But that doesn't mean the party is unanimously behind him. And I think the fact that he got 51 percent is very impressive. But the fact that 49 percent of Republicans voted for someone else also shows that he may have more than enough strength to win the nomination. But he doesn't have a fully unified party behind him, despite what seems to be appearances from time to time.
1: We're joined by Charles Franklin of the Marquette University Law School Poll. If you have a question for Charles, our WTMJ talk and text line is 855-616-1620. And we do have a caller on the line uh, ready to join Charles here. Uh, We have Dan from Milwaukee, and I'll just clarify, I am a Dan from Milwaukee. This is another Dan from Milwaukee. (laughs) Dan from Milwaukee, thank you for joining us.
0: Hey there. Um, I really appreciate your time. And I um, really want to ask, uh, Charles, um, so uh, what, what would you gauge
3: the former Attorney General Brad Schimmel's chances of winning a state Supreme Court justice are?
0: Well, I think he's getting in early. Uh, that may keep other Republicans out of the, the race. It's always better Mm -hmm. from a candidate's point of view if they don't have a tough primary. Um, Gives him plenty of time to fundraise, and we saw spending in this past election for the Supreme Court break all records, and I would think the next race will be very expensive. So I think those are pluses. He's been out of office for a while, but he also won the attorney generalship in this state, and so he has. Uh, experience winning and losing statewide elections so I think he's a strong candidate on those scores but it's a long ways between now and the election in 2025 Um, but when you think about candidates for office one way to look at them is what kind of electoral experience do they have and Schumel has more of that than most judicial candidates have so that's probably a plus for him. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, other question I got for you. So I'm hearing all night long on the 24-hour news networks, them say that the freezing cold was gonna be good for uh, competitors of Donald Trump and that it would keep <laughs> his supporters away. Is that just malarkey? Can you actually gauge the, uh, the, the, the,
0: how it changes things? i think that's very hard to do and you know you can tell the story both ways you can say well donald trump supporters might take his victory for granted and therefore stay away because of the weather you can also tell the story of donald trump's supporters are really pretty dedicated to him it's not everybody in the party but those who are dedicated would turn out no matter what. So I think it's a long shot, or at least a very speculative thing in advance to say who's going to be helped or hurt by the bad weather. The one thing you can point to is actually with Nikki Haley in the late polling. Um, The poll showed that her supporters were not that enthusiastic about her. And she did very close to what the poll said she would do. But that lack of enthusiasm may have, you know, prevented her from sort of gaining strength. And instead, those late deciding voters went to DeSantis, uh, who was the one candidate to do about five points better than expected. Whether that's turnout or whether that's changing opinion at the last minute, it's hard to know.
1: Thanks so much for the call, Dan. Sure. From one Dan from Milwaukee to another. Thank you for uh, thank for thank you for joining the show here. And yeah, Charles, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Nikki Haley in particular, uh, because if you look at the map from last night, uh, you know it was Donald Trump won just about every county. Nikki Haley won one county. Uh, where is she doing well in the, in this Iowa caucus, uh, and, and how do you see that uh, you know having a having a fact being a factor uh, in this race going forward?
0: Yeah, her big problem is there was no demographic group that she really dominated in, whereas Trump won at least the plurality in almost every demographic category. That was covered in the in the exit polls or entrance polls, actually, because mm-hmm. they're polls taken as people go into the caucus rather than exit polls as they go out. Um, the one exception was voters under thirty, where Trump did poorly and she did better among college and non college graduates. Trump actually got the plurality in both college and non college, but did thirty points worse with college graduates than non-college. And that was the group that Haley did best with, but it still wasn't enough to overtake Trump. So if you look at it from the point of view of how do I win, if you're not winning the plurality of any demographic group, again, with the exception of those under 30, you've got a long road to go. Now, so what you can do is change voters, move to New Hampshire. New Hampshire voters have different views of Trump and of Haley and of politics broadly. And so I think that's the best avenue for her is probably not to appeal to a different set of demographics, but rather a different type of voter. And New Hampshire gives her that chance.
1: We're talking with Charles Franklin of the Marquette University Law School poll. Um, You know, Nikki Haley At 20 percent last night, Ron DeSantis at 20 percent, right about 20 percent last night. But Donald Trump is still so, so far ahead. Can you recall a less competitive uh, presidential primary that you have covered since you've been uh, since you've been doing the law poll?
0: No, it's very rare to see it this lopsided unless there's an incumbent president on the ballot. Trump is interesting because he's not an incumbent, but he is a former president. So it's kind of unique there. But when we see incumbent presidents running, we usually see them clearing the field. Nobody ran against Trump four years ago. Um, There are times when an incumbent will be challenged, but usually they go on to crush the opposition pretty rapidly. Um, So I think Trump had a. a good night, but not anything like the, the margin you would expect with an incumbent running, a sitting incumbent. Um, but that doesn't offer much hope for who wins the, the nomination in the end. If you're winning 50% of the votes in all these primaries coming up and the others are splitting the remainder, then you're kind of a shoe-in to get the nomination. Only something that changes dramatically, and it's got to change real soon, uh, I think, would change those odds. Not yeah. to say it couldn't happen, but we sure haven't seen evidence of it at this point.
1: Yeah, I think back to to four years ago when it was the Democratic presidential primary. And, you know, J- Joe Biden didn't do particularly well in, in Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, then went to South Carolina, did extraordinarily well. Uh, and then you had a number of candidates drop out and endorse biden uh you know i think bernie sanders was doing well they in the early going pete Buttigieg was, was doing all right in the early going they you know a, a number of those candidates dropped out and endorsed biden uh we're we're not seeing something like that happening it doesn't seem like on the republican side because you know well i guess we just saw vivek ramaswamy drop out and endorse donald trump which is a perhaps the least surprising news uh, of the day in the Republican primary. But but you, you're not seeing the, the type of coalition to go against Trump. It, it just seems like Republicans are, are pretty much all in on Trump at this point.
0: Right. If you go back to January a year ago, um, in our polling, we were seeing DeSantis actually running a little bit ahead of Trump in a head to head matchup among Republicans. But that, Slipped over the spring and plummeted ever since. Now DeSantis is uh, well behind Trump in a head-to-head hypothetical. So I think there was a moment a year ago or so when an alternative candidate conceivably could have emerged. In January a year ago, DeSantis was actually getting 30% of the vote from Republicans that liked Donald Trump. That was an impressive threat to Trump from inside the Trump House inside the coalition. But then DeSantis was unable to capitalize on that opportunity, had a lackluster spring when he didn't actually get in the race and then a lackluster early campaign. Meanwhile, Trump took after DeSantis uh, in Trumpian ways and really came back over the later spring and uh, into the summer. By that point, the die was cast. And to the extent Republicans were coalescing, there were more coalescing around Trump rather than coalescing among any of the alternatives. Remember, we had a 12-person field, a, well, not quite a year ago, but last spring, and almost all of them have now dropped out with the exception of Haley and DeSantis. So it has narrowed the field, but there hasn't been a consensus movement to either DeSantis or Haley. Meanwhile, Trump is sitting at that 50% in Iowa, running a 60% or a little ahead of that in national polling right now. Um, So as I said earlier, there is some disgruntlement with Trump in the party, but it hasn't centered on anybody and hasn't been enough to offset Trump's real strength. Seems like
1: we're headed towards, uh, headed towards a situation where Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee, probably giving that convention speech in Milwaukee later this year. Uh, Charles Franklin of the Marquette University Law School poll. Thank you so much, uh, for joining us. Always appreciate your insight. And, uh, we look forward to the next poll. Thank you. Take care. All right. We're going to be headed to a break now. And after the break, news will be next. Stick with us. This is WTMJ Nights. This is WTMJ Nights. And now, here's your
3: host, Dan Schaefer.
1: Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to join the conversation we're having here on the show on WTMJ Nights, shoot us a text, give us us a call. The WTMJ Talk and text line is open 855-616-1620. Uh, we've had a lot of guests so far joining the show. Claire Koenig from Visit Milwaukee joined us uh, at the beginning of the show to talk about Milwaukee Museum Days. That's an exciting event. Getting started just two days away. Lots of discounts on museums all over the city of Milwaukee. Definitely check that out over at Visit Milwaukee uh, for what those promotions are. And then we are also joined by Charles Franklin of the Marquette University Law School poll uh, to talk about some of the results from the Iowa caucus. Uh, sure seems like... The Republican presidential primary is shaping up to be perhaps the least competitive one in recent memory. Donald Trump running away, uh, with the win there, you know, he got more than 50% of the vote, got more than every other candidate combined. Uh, so it certainly looks like the former president uh, is on track to be the nominee, and it looks like we're headed towards a rematch of 2020 with Donald Trump and Joe Biden on the ballot. Uh, once again, my name is Dan Schaefer. I am your guest host this evening. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with me and my work, that is, uh, you can find uh, what I do over at the Recombobulation Area. Uh, it's an independent publication and weekly opinion column. Covering news and politics in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. Uh, one of the stories that I've been writing a whole lot about for quite some time now uh, is redistricting and gerrymandering in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, you know, f- for so long in Wisconsin, we have had what many consider to be the most uh, gerrymandered maps. Of Any state legislature in the country, uh, the Republicans in uh, when they had control of the process in 2011 with under Governor Scott Walker trifecta con- control of the state legislature passed a map that gave Republicans pretty. Enormous advantages uh, in the state legislature. And obviously, you know, that that was really one of the big topics uh, to come up in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. Uh, from last April, Janet Protasiewicz winning, uh, you know, a Wisconsin landslide of a victory, uh, ten point margin victory to get, to be, to show that you know voters really wanted change at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And I think you know, along with the abortion rights issue and a number of other top issues that be- became uh, key in that campaign, I think the redistricting one was certainly a big one, certainly one that I've written a whole lot about uh, at the Recombobulation area. So you can check out our coverage of that uh, news in the, within the last. Last week uh, on the redistricting case, Um, the basically so here's what happened. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled late last year uh, on a case brought before the new uh, the new makeup of the court with the uh, four three liberal majority on the court uh, to rule the rule challenge the maps as unconstitutional. The court. On December 22nd, struck down uh, the legislative maps as unconstitutional, and required a number of parties involved in that lawsuit to submit new maps to uh, to be considered uh, for the the future of the state. The you know th- this are very important. The foundation uh, of the state legislature: the 99 seats in the state assembly, the 33 seats uh, in the state senate. Uh, so there were seven maps. They were submitted last Friday. And I, if you want to get a better understanding of what those maps are, how they break down, how they might change, I would encourage you to follow the work of John D. Johnson of the Marquette University Lubar Center. He's been providing some I in mean, tremendous public service, looking at the, looking at these maps, analyzing them, breaking them down, showing different ways that uh, these maps will, you know, carve up the state and, and have different representation uh, than what we have had for the last 12 plus years uh, in the state of Wisconsin. News today from the Associated Press on this. The Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss uh, criticized. A number of these proposals uh, as, quote, a political gerrymander and threatened an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which, you know, he has been doing ever since the uh, since the state Supreme Court struck down those maps. And, you know, we'll wait and see what exactly that U.S. Supreme Court challenge might look like, but. Coming from Robin Voss saying that something is a political gerrymander uh, is a little bit of the pot calling in the kettle black here. Let's 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 be let's be frank. Uh, Robin Voss has championed the most extreme partisan gerrymander anywhere in the country, arguably, uh, and. You know, we have a 50-50 state here in uh, the state of Wisconsin. You know, so many of our statewide elections are decided by decimal points. Uh, You know, we've had the last year featured there. I'm sorry, the 2022 midterms featured the closest U.S. Senate race uh, in more than 100 years. Four of our last six presidential elections have been decided by less than 1%. Uh, you know, we're looking at another potential Trump Biden rematch of la- last time it was decided by just about 20,000 votes when Joe Biden won in the state of Wisconsin. We have extraordinarily close elections here, but they what hasn't been close uh, since this gerrymander came into place in 2011. Wisconsin is our state legislative elections. And no matter what, Republicans have been able to keep those majorities. They've had more than 60 uh, seats in the Wisconsin State Assembly since that uh, since those new maps at that point were installed Um, and you know these new maps uh, had John Johnson's breakdown showed them you know six of the seven maps essentially uh, showed you know what would amount to a much closer margin uh, between the uh, between the Democrats and Republicans projected on the 2022 map so I'm going to go through quickly and just talk about the breakdown on those maps see if you can spot the outlier so Tony Evers submitted a map. The 2022 projection on that map would be 46 seats for Democrats, 53 seats for Republicans. Next one from Law Forward, the group that is that uh, has challenged the maps, and brought this lawsuit forth. Uh, 49 for Democrats, 50 for Republicans. That would be the projection based on the 2022 vote. Legislative Republicans submitted a map. 35 Democrats, 64 Republicans. Okay, that's close to a supermajority. That's essentially the same numbers as they, as we have right now in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, a group called uh, the uh, uh, Fast Map, I believe, this is a group of mathematicians that put put together a map. Forty-seven Democratic, fifty-two Republican. The Senate Democrats' map: forty-six Democratic, fifty-three Republican. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Liberty, a, a right-wing organization, submitted a map: thirty-nine Democratic. 60 Republican and then another group called the another group uh, petitioners that challenged the maps uh, called kind of shorthand the right petitioners W.R.I.G.H.T. petitioners 48 Democratic 51 Republican so see if you can spot the outlier there it's pretty obvious it's the map submitted by the legislative Republicans you know there is no map that is comes close to to the type of partisan gerrymander that we have seen in Wisconsin for more than 12 years and that re- Wisconsin Republicans have submitted again as part of this process. Not even the right-leaning group like Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, which, frankly, has some quality attributes to it. Uh, if you look into the details of the map, they don't split as many municipalities and counties as certainly as the other Republican map, but it, you know, even in comparison to uh, some of the other submissions. I think that's a good thing. But there's nothing that really comes close to what legislative Republicans have done here. And that's why I think the comments from Robin Voss today on these maps are just a perfect example of the pot calling the kettle black. And I think we have to get to a place in Wisconsin where we move on from this current gerrymander. We have to get to a place where where we have new maps and we have more competitive elections and we have an opportunity to hold our elected officials, a better opportunity to hold our elected officials accountable. And I think that is ultimately the opportunity that new maps can bring. It's not about it's not about the D versus R. It's not about the red versus blue. It's about having a map that better reflects the electorate in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is not a state that has a 15%, 16%, or 17% Republican advantage. It's just not. We have, you know, the political geography of the state does suggest that Republicans might have a little bit of an advantage in the state legislature. Fair Maps advocates have talked about this for years, saying we don't want this to be an overwhelmingly Democratic map. And as the numbers I just broke down for you show... All of the maps for the Wisconsin State Assembly submitted, even those submitted by the Democratic governor, by state Senate Democrats, would project with a Republican advantage. But not, but not the type of advantage that we're seeing right now. We're talking about, instead of a, you know, a some, something between a two- and six-point advantage, that you know, maybe in a wave election year, Democrats could win. Uh, a majority in the state state legislature i think republicans would be projected to win most years but not all years and i think that's the difference we are not a deep red state we are a purple state and i think our maps in the state legislature should reflect that we're going to be headed to break now this is dan schaefer with wtmj nights stick with us Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. I'm your guest host this evening. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got the WTMJ Talk and Text Line open for you. Shoot us a text. Give us a call. Join the conversation here at 855-616-1620. Again, that WTMJ Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. We were talking before the break Uh, about the state's redistricting process. And this is, it's kind of a wonky story. It kind of gets into the weeds. It's kind of a a, a bizarre one. Uh, But at the same time, it's a super, super important story. These maps set the foundation of the way that we elect our representatives in the state legislature. The state legislature is an incredibly important governing body uh, in the state of Wisconsin. You know, it, the way that uh, the government is kind of set up in the state of Wisconsin, we have a very powerful state legislature. You don't have as much power at the local level. That changed a little bit earlier this year uh, with the sh- shared revenue reform deal. So it's really important to, to take a look. Uh, At the state legislature, follow what's happening there, Um, you know, at the recombobulation area, the website and uh, online publication uh, that I publish and write. I've done a whole lot of work previewing elections uh, in the state legislature. I'm the only guy crazy enough to preview every last race in the Wisconsin state legislature that was on the ballot. Uh, that, that work, uh, earned me a Milwaukee press club award, I might add. Uh, but it's, uh, I went through and previewed every last race. And what, one of the things that I found really going through race by race district by district is just showing how few competitive elections that we have in the state because of the way the maps were drawn and the maps were drawn to, you know, so many of the, uh, the state is very polarized so there a nature is to a certain extent uh, you know this is just the nature of the beast uh, when it comes to elections in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, but at the same time, you know we, we are a purple state in a lot of ways and the maps did not really reflect this. We had a lot of heavily Republican districts. And a lot of heavily Democratic districts, fewer heavily Democratic districts under the most recent map uh, that was just ruled unconstitutional by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, but at the same time, you just, you want to have more competition. And I think the more that we have. These state legislators competing for voters and not just taking them for granted, we're going to be able to elect people that are perhaps closer to the center. We might be able to get a little bit more done uh, if that were a possibility. I mean, you know, I think there are even some some hints of of the way this could take shape in the past year you know after the uh after Janet Protasiewicz won in the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh last spring that that huge 10 point victory uh that changed the direction of the Wisconsin Supreme Court i feel like we saw a little bit of moderation a little bit more cooperation between uh democrats and republicans in the state of wisconsin getting some important bipartisan bills passed on shared revenue and the relationship with local government uh on the deal to keep the Milwaukee brewers uh, in Milwaukee, other things like the way that alcohol policy is governed in the state. There was a housing bill. There were a number of kind of bipartisan victories over the past year that I think we hadn't seen that I think was, uh, did come about because we saw this change and we saw, you know, the possibility uh, uh, of new maps because of that change. Uh, and now that we're potentially heading into a groundbreaking election cycle uh, with, these new state legislative maps, I think people should pay close attention uh, to what exactly is happening here. And so the new maps were submitted uh, last uh, last Friday. We've been breaking them down uh, earlier in the show here. There's a number of ways you can look at it. John Johnson at Marquette University. Uh, I've got a thread over at my page at the Recombabulation Area. I think some of that's really important. Uh, going ahead here, Uh, The February 1st is a date to be aware of on the Wisconsin redistricting timeline. That is when, uh, you know, the people appointed to uh, take a look at these maps, uh, take a look at these submissions, uh, will file a report. And so we will see what these uh, courts consultants will have to say when they file a report. And, you know, they have to get these maps in place uh, by March 15th. So we have a pretty tight timeline within the next two months. There's going to be a lot happening here uh, on the redistricting front. And if we get new maps in place by March 15th, uh, that is going to mean that, you know, the candidates who are going to want to be on the ballot are going to start getting those signatures to get on. People are going to have to make decisions about running there, you know, will be a lot of change. Uh, if these new maps do go forward uh, and we'll have to see, you know, who's living in what district and where and how they could represent their communities. Uh, so this is a really important story to pay attention to. Uh, and as we we're dis- discussing before the break, uh, you know, there were seven map submissions. Really. One of those uh, was an outlier. Uh, and, and that was the one submitted by the legislative Republicans led by Robin Voss. They essentially, you know, the, the court said that we will take, you, we want to take partisan impact uh, into account with these new maps. We want these new maps uh, to better reflect the state of Wisconsin's electorate. And, and frankly, the legislative Republicans didn't really do that. Uh, they didn't uh, didn't really take the assignment and and drew themselves, again, close to supermajority. Uh, again, this is a two-thirds supermajority in a 50-50 purple state. Um, so, a- again, we really want to... It's going to be really important to pay attention to this. I'm going to be covering it closely at the recombobulation area. Uh, so do uh, subscribe and take a look at what we have there. Uh, this is a really important piece. Um, and, you know, I, I would encourage you to take a look at the uh, the breakdown from John Johnson, too, because it shows you uh, some of these maps, uh, s- how they would look on a different outcome. And, again, it's, it's not about... Uh, redrawing the maps to favor a different party it's it's about redrawing the maps that actually reflect uh the state of wisconsin uh and so and so we're going to wrap up our politics chat uh for this part of the evening on wtmj nights uh and we're going to be moving on to some sports after this justin garcia from the bucks radio network is going to be joining us in studio we're about at the halfway point of the season for the Milwaukee Bucks. And anybody who follows me on Twitter, uh, at Dan R. Schaefer, knows I'm a huge Milwaukee Bucks fan. So I'm looking forward to talking with Justin uh, after the break here. This is WTMJ Nights. Stick with us. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. All right, so we've gotten through... We've talked a lot of politics over the last hour here. We talked to Charles Franklin from the Marquette University Law School poll. We talked a little bit about uh this, some of the redistricting news that's been happening in the state. If you're going to le- if you're going to give me a microphone at w- 620 WTMJ, I'm going to have to talk about the Bucks at some point. So Justin Garcia from the Bucks Radio Network is here to talk about just that. Justin, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Anytime. So I was I was just looking at the you know the Bucks record and the standings and just like the basics to get where we are. Somehow we're at almost the halfway point of the regular season. Tomorrow is game forty-one. It feels like feels like we got here quickly. (laughs) Uh, Feels (laughs) like it's
3: more than halfway at this point.
1: Yeah, but it's uh, you know the the Bucks are at an interesting point. They've they've had a pretty successful first half of the season. We just had that incredible. Game winner uh, with Damian Lillard on Sunday night. One of the you know Sunday was one of the best Wisconsin sports days in recent memory. Made the best day uh, as a Wisconsin professional sports fan since the Bucks won the finals uh, in 2021 with Dame Lillard hitting that overtime buzzer beater. The Packers uh, beating up on the Dallas Cowboys. Um, let, let's let's take a step back though. What's the thirty thousand foot view uh, of where the Bucks are at this point in the season? At about the midway point.
3: Um, I mean, I, I suppose there's really two camps that, uh, that view this a certain way. Either you are in the, you know, all things considered, I think they're in a good spot Mm -hmm. that you're what two or three games back of the Celtics and the Bucks have clearly not hit their ceiling, um, yet they're, they've been closer to that offensively than defensively. But if we're comparing the two teams, um, I don't think any of us are surprised the Celtics are where they are, but it, it does seem like the Celtics are the team that, and I'm not saying this is the case, but between the two, they're the team that's more likely to have been like, yeah, they were already in fifth gear, and they were very close to their ceiling, whereas the Bucks are not there. Um, and look, the, the schedule is going to get more difficult, so winning is really all that matters right now. On the flip side, I think everybody would point to the defense. Mm -hmm. and say, you know, the model is what the Denver Nuggets did last year to say we have a very good to elite offense that can take it from there and our defense just has to be good enough. We've seen flashes of that, but it hasn't consistently been there. So that's going to be the challenge is getting that group there. And I think the, the interesting part is we keep pointing back to games since November 3rd when after four games when they put Brooke Lopez closer to the basket um, I think we're probably going to stop doing that at some point, and it's going to be games since what's tomorrow, January 17th, when Jay Crowder is back and hopefully stays healthy, that that's hopefully the point where you start to see even more of a step forward.
1: Yeah, because I think the problem the problem with the defense in particular, I mean, there's a lot of problems with the defense right now. There's not one singular problem. But I think you have, if you just look at the makeup of the roster, the strength of the defense on the roster is the interior. Right. With Brooke Lopez, who came in second in defensive player of the year voting last year, Giannis Adeticumbo, former defensive player of the year himself, without Drew Holiday at the point of attack, those two on the back end of the strength of their defense. The problem has been on the perimeter. Obviously, without you know, going from Drew Holiday to Damian Lillard might might give you a buzzer beater uh and 40 point games and a lot of offense uh from the uh from Dame Lillard the way we might not have seen from Drew Holiday the defense is a little bit different the rest of the roster construction uh, you know the trade came so late in the off season yeah. the rest of the roster construction was kind of a better fit around Drew than around Dame you could argue uh so so what are you seeing, you know, on the on the perimeter defense for this team?
3: Well, um, it has to get better. I think that's yeah. the obvious. And to your point of, you know, I think we all made this point too that Malik Beasley. It, it and this is not to to take away from anything he's done because he's done everything that you asked him to do, and he's he been, competes. Yeah, he's been incredible at shooting the ball too. League leader in three point shooting. Yeah, he competes defensively, but he's he's clearly not Drew Holiday, and right. very few players are. But that tandem made a lot more sense when you had Drew Holiday there. And and this system that Adrian Griffin wanted to run made a lot more sense and was designed with Drew Holiday there. And then a week before the season starts, you have the burden of getting Damian Lillard. <laughs> um, so I, I think the big thing is we've seen issues obviously holding up on the perimeter. And you think about the number of times that we've seen guards go off for big games against this team, they're just getting into pick-and-rolls, and and challenging Brooke Lopez. He still leads the league in contests. But last year it was more by design, where you had Drew Holiday meeting people and funneling them into Drew. This year it's basically or into Brooke. It's been out of necessity this year. So that's the big thing. And um, Jay Crowder isn't going to fix everything. But I'm very curious to see how it, it changes that. Because the interesting part is... Jay Crowder, before his injury, had played the third most minutes on this team.
1: He was playing those closing lineups. Yeah, behind with Giannis
3: and Dame, and yeah. he played more fourth quarter minutes than Brooke. And you've had to play one way only with Jay Crowder out. We've seen Bobby Portis do that at times, but Jay Crowder allows you to do it a lot more efficiently. So it may not be quite as easy to... Um, look, you, you still have Drew Holiday, but you'd be able to switch a lot more if Giannis is playing the five and Jay Crowder is playing the four next to him versus you can't really do that when it's Brooke Lopez and you have to play um, one way. So it's not going to solve everything, but I am curious to see if we go back to that. And I'm assuming it's going to take time for Jay Crowder to get back to the 25-plus minutes per game that he was playing. Um, But once he is back up to speed, if he, again, becomes one of the stalwarts in your closing lineup, whether you're playing big with Brooke or you just say, we're going to switch, so teams can't really exploit the pick and roll against us. We're joined by
1: Justin Garcia of the Bucks Radio Network here on WTMJ nights. Yeah, the defense has has certainly been the big problem uh, for the team. The offense, though, at certain points has looked amazing. Uh, at certain points, has looked a little bit confusing. Yeah, what's what's the what's happening on the offensive side of the
3: ball? Well, it's still and um, yeah, I know people get tired of hearing it, but this whole process is going to take time. And I, I keep pointing back to 2021, and that was a year where 50% of the roster was new coming into the season. You still made changes during the season, bringing in a uh, P.J. Tucker, the biggest one of those changes. It wasn't until the final game before the All-Star break that it really felt like, okay, this team is is starting to gel and things are clicking now. And that was the 72-game schedule. So that was like 35 games, somewhere around there. Um, Tomorrow is obviously game number 41, but we're a couple of weeks away from the All-Star break, and I had kind of thrown out the beginning of the year, there's no magic number of it takes 30 games or it takes 20 games. But you do kind of wonder, like, is this another going to be to the All-Star break because of how much change there is here? And the big part of it, too, is... Giannis and Damian Lillard have been the same guy on their respective teams for the last few years. And if you go back to that that stretch, the only game Giannis has missed so far this season, knock on wood, um, and then those two games that Dame missed right around the same time, that's when it seemed like the offense started to look much more consistent and elite. And I do wonder if that was just Dame got to play the way that he did in Portland and then Giannis for two games got to play the way he did the last few years And the two of them kind of figured out, okay, here's how we can work some of this stuff in. So I think that is part of the challenge, that that's still evolving. It's gotten better. Uh, That two-man game is certainly not used as frequently as people envisioned or hoped, but I do also wonder if that's by design. But when we do see it, it's still lethal, and I think there's no denying The offense has taken a huge step forward since mid-November ish. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And they've consistently been pretty good, but there is certainly still some more room for that. And I think it's it's just it's going to take time, and it's going to take Damian Lillard, you know, maybe taking over more because I think he's clearly been a little passive at times, saying, "Well, this isn't my team. This is Giannis's team, and I'm just trying to fit in here." Yeah, there's a little been a little bit of
1: that, you know, your turn, my turn. Type of vibe between Giannis and Lillard, you know, and I, and like you said, I think, I think you're right. And, uh, the more Damian Lillard takes the reins on the offensive end, uh, particularly late in games like we saw the other night with the buzzer beater, uh, that's going to that's gonna be a benefit to the Bucs uh, in the long term. We're talking with Justin Garcia of the Bucks Radio Network. Uh, he's going to stick with us after the break here. If you want to join the conversation at all, hit us up on the WTMJ Talk and text line 855-616-1620. We are headed to break now, and we will be right back. You are listening to WTMJ Nights. Right Welcome up. back to WTMJ Nights. My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm your guest host this evening. If you want to join the conversation here on WTMJ Nights, give us a call, shoot us a text. WTMJ Talk and Text Line 855-616-1620. Uh, we're joined here for the, this last half hour of the show on WTMJ Nights by Justin Garcia of the Bucks Radio Network. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the Bucks' struggles on the defensive side of the ball, uh, the the Success that they've been having on the offensive side of the ball, and the fact that we are at the midway point uh, in the season, and we're now, you know, what, about a month away, a little over a month away from the All Star break, and even less than that from the trade deadline. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've been watching closely, you know, just as a Bucs fan, wanting to see this roster, you know, take shape and be a championship contender, is watching some of those bench players, some of those young players. Um, Andre Jackson Jr., Marjan Beauchamp, uh, on through the list there. Um, for me, I think Andre Jackson has really jumped out and become one of my favorites uh, of this season so far. Um, do you see any of these younger players, you know, being a part of a playoff rotation, being a part of a championship contenders' playoff rotation?
3: So that uh, that's interesting because I would have said no, or at least like not, not extensive like maybe you'll see some of um, any of those guys, but you're just kind of conditioned to not expect much from rookies, especially, but young guys in the playoffs that you, you got to go through it to kind of understand how the speed of the game changes and everything else. Um, But then Saturday night that things kind of changed when uh, the Bucks played the Warriors and before the game in a Griff's press conference, Andre Jackson Jr.'s name came up of I think one of the the San Francisco reporters was just asking, like, hey, this kid has really stood out. What have you seen in him? And Adrian Griffin specifically mentioned the comp of Christian Brown and said he reminds me of Christian Brown uh in the sense that he's young and we think he can play in the playoffs. Which and
1: Christian Brown played really well for the Denver Nuggets yeah, on the championship team last year.
3: Up and down uh season, and I think looking at the numbers he um he played most of the games for the nuggets he started i believe as many games as a rookie as as andre has already started so far this season but um they played him in the playoffs and he had some big moments he was defending lebron james in that series in the western conference finals he's more of a defensive guy um than you would think about his offense but you know that's one of the very few examples people appoint to tyler hero to. it's kind of a little different, a little bit of an outlier being in the bubble that season, but it's rare. And for Adrian Griffin to specifically say, this is my comp for him and we think that he can play, is very encouraging and it's it, there's no denying the impact that he has. And, and we've heard Griff talk about him for a while now in his affinity for him because he was a role player and he sees the things that Andre Jackson Jr. does and, I mean, there's no denying the spark that he has on his team, too. When you see a guy that's a rookie go out there and play with that motor, it's hard not to match the same. And for an older team, sometimes that's what you need. Yeah, I need
1: needs some athleticism on the wing, especially anywhere in the NBA. You need some athleticism on the wing. And I think Jackson has, has been able to deliver that to some extent. Uh, he's got to work on those fouls. He, he fouls a lot. Uh, you know, he's a rookie, but, I, you know, I think it's a good thing that he's playing aggressively, but he's got to work on cutting down that foul rate overall yeah. if he's going to really, you know, see high leverage minutes in the playoffs. Well, um,
3: and that's, and quickly, that's the thing, too, that Griff said. He recognizes, and I think the most recent game, too, we, we saw him only play 10 minutes because of foul trouble. Um, but he also said, look, it, it happens to young players. And why I've had a longer leash with him is because they're not dumb fouls, for lack of a better word. like It's not like he's making fouls out of frustration or ones that we want to coach him and say, what were you thinking here? He's getting whistled for being too aggressive at times. And a lot of times it's the opposite for rookies, where they don't realize the aggression that they have to bring and and match the intensity that you kind of get caught with your hand in the cookie jar a lot of times. And it's been the opposite for Andre Jackson Jr. So I think that's another reason why Griff has so much confidence in him.
1: Yeah, he's a really interesting player. How about how about Beauchamp though? I I feel like he, you know, he has so much potential uh as a two-way player. He plays pretty good defense. I, again, like in a lot like a lot of young players he fouls a lot. Um but he, he he's been pretty inconsistent though uh as an offensive player in particular. Uh do you think he's going to crack a rotation? Is he on the trading block as they look to, you know, John Horst is always very aggressive uh, at the trade deadline, would he be the piece uh, that perhaps the Bucks would consider moving?
3: I mean, it's it's certainly possible because they don't have much in terms of right. They movable. traded all their draft picks right. for Drew Holiday and Jim Lillard. They, they don't, they have, a lot don't have, lot, have any. Lot left there. Yeah. they have one draft asset, which you would assume we want to hold on to this, and and we're only give it up if the deal is right, and that is this year's second round pick from the Portland Trailblazers, which figures to basically be a very very late first round pick. So you have that. But in terms of contracts, not a whole lot of not tradable much, yeah. pieces because this roster is comprised of, like, max deals and then guys that are closer to the to the rookie scale. Um, for Marjan, it's been an up-and-down year, as you pointed to, but I think a lot of people have gotten frustrated and get the sense that, well, I, I'm assuming he's just been leapfrogged by everybody else. I don't think that's the case. We saw earlier in the season, too, when, when Andre Jackson Jr. was starting to break out then you went through stretches where, as as a rookie, you're you're going to struggle with the game speed and other things. And Marjan was back in the rotation, or AJ Green was back there. So I think you're going to continue to see him this year. Um, the the biggest, I don't know if issue is the right word, but the unfortunate thing with those two guys, and even Chris Livingston, who we saw a little bit of, and he had
1: some good minutes the other night, and yeah. he's
3: got the exact frame that you would want for players at that position. The unfortunate part is these three guys. I think there is something there that these all three of them could, and I think will be rotational pieces. But you just wish the Bucks would have drafted them three years ago. Where at, yeah. at this season, they're very well seasoned and coming into their own.
1: Yeah, and you need to be. I mean, the Bucks need to com- be competing for a championship this season. You know, Giannis still very much in his prime. Lillard, probably at the back, back end of his prime. Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez are not getting any younger. Uh, and I think they're still terrific players. Um, but at the same time, you, you wonder how much longer, uh, they're going to be playing at the level they're at. All right. We got one more segment after the break here with Justin Garcia of the Bucks Radio Network. You are listening to WTMJ Nights. Stick with us. Welcome back to WTMJ Nights. Thank you for listening. My name is Dan Schaefer. I'm the founder of a weekly opinion column and online publication called The Recombobulation Area. And hey, while I'm on the radio, uh, you should maybe check out that, check out that online publication called The Recombobulation Area. Uh, you can become a free subscriber, get each weekly column in your inbox for free. You can become a paid subscriber and support local independent journalism. How about that? Uh, we're going to wrap things up here with one more segment with Justin Garcia uh, of the Bucks Radio Network, and let, let's just go big picture right now. Uh, are the Bucks a championship contender as currently constructed?
3: Uh, yes, I think they are. It's a matter of tiers within the championship contender, and I think it's, look, the, the Celtics look like a better team right now, but as we mentioned earlier, you still have Giannis. You still have Dame Lillard, who we saw can still do what he did Sunday night and has done similar things a couple of times already this season. So that's the big advantage they will have is even with those defensive questions out there, the reality is every single series the Bucks are in, at least in the Eastern Conference, they're, they're going to have the best player on the floor. Depending on how you view Joel Embiid, but for the most part, no, no, we don't have to do that. We're, this is this is Milwaukee. They're going to have the best. is the best player on the floor. They're in gonna, East, well, yeah. they're going to have the best two way player for sure, but they're yeah. going to have the best player on the floor and arguably the second best with Damian Lillard. So that's their big edge. Yeah, I, you know, talent
1: does. Tend to win out in the NBA in the end. You know, talent tends to trump everything. Uh, you know, you would like to see a little bit more cohesive of a plan, uh, from head coach Adrian Griffin. You would like to see a little bit better perimeter defense. I'd like to see John Horst make a trade, uh, before the trade deadline. One guy that I have had circ- his name circled for the year is Dorian Finney Smith from the Brooklyn Nets. I think he'd be a great perimeter defender. Uh, but, you know, it, it's gonna be a it's gonna be an interesting stretch here between now and the February trade deadline, uh, the All Star break about a month from now, uh, and the rest of the season. It's it's Bucks and Six time. Let's go.
3: It's gonna it's this is the best time of year as we're getting close to the trade deadline. And look, John Horse has done stuff every year, and he he does more than you would assume he's capable of doing too annually. And this year, is busy. it's basically the last chance the Bucks have to do something because of the second apron kicking in in the summer. So I do expect them to do at least, at least one move at the trade deadline. All right. Justin Garcia from the Bucks Radio Network, thank you so much for
1: joining us. And thank you all for joining us on WTMJ Nights. I've been Dan Schaefer. Have a wonderful evening.